Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQBD Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, in the wake of George Floyd's murder at the hands of a Minneapolis police officer, we saw a rare level of national and international attention on violence and racism in policing. Protesters and their signs did not call out the U.S. Supreme Court, but constitutional law scholar Erwin Chemerinsky says they'd be well justified if they had. In his new book, Presumed Guilty, Chemerinsky lays out how the Supreme Court, through its decisions, has sanctioned excessive use of force and enabled racist policing. He joins us after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. When victims of police violence and their attorneys try to hold officers accountable for abuses, they almost always come up against a handful of U.S. Supreme Court decisions that make it near impossible. In this hour, we look at those cases with constitutional law scholar and Berkeley Law School Dean Erwin Chemerinsky, who finds that our nation's highest court has played an outsized role in enabling the violence and racism we've seen in law enforcement actions today. His new book is Presumed Guilty. Erwin Chemerinsky, welcome to Forum. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate having you on. And and I guess I'll start by just diving into one of those Supreme Court decisions that you say has had profound ramifications on the rights of police abuse victims. Interestingly, one of the first cases you open with in your book is one that happened in Los Angeles in 1976 called Lyons v. City of Los Angeles. Can you tell us about it? Can you tell us what happened to Adolph Lyons? Of course, Adolph Lyons is a 24-year-old African-American man. He was stopped one night by Los Angeles police officers bringing a burnt-out taillight. The officers ordered him out of his car. The officers slammed Lyons' hands above his head under the roof of the car. Lyons complained that the keys that were in his hand were cutting to the skin of his palm. The officer thought that Lyons was, quote, mouthing off and administered a chokehold on Lyons. Hmm. Literally, the officer put his forearm around Lyons' neck and squeezed till Lyons was unconscious. He awoke. He had urinated and defecated. He was spitting blood and dirt. He was given a traffic ticket and allowed to go. He did some research and discovered to that point, 16 people in Los Angeles had died from police use of the chokehold, almost all like him, black men. He sued the city for an injunction to stop police from using the chokehold 
except where necessary, protect the office life or safety. Hmm. But the Supreme Court ruled five to four that Lyons could not sue for an injunction. The court said Lyons could not show that it was likely that he personally choked again by Los Angeles police officers. The court said if a plaintiff like Lyons wants an injunction, the plaintiff has to show that he or she is likely to be personally hurt in the future. We wonder why do police around the country continue to use the chokehold? It's what killed Eric Garner. It's what killed George Floyd. The answer is the Supreme Court has said that no court can stop it because no one can show it's likely that he or she will be choked again in the future. Wow. So, I mean, he gets stopped for a taillight. He is perceived as mouthing off to the cop. He's put in a chokehold. And when he sues, you're saying he wasn't even trying to basically ban the chokehold. He was trying to get an injunction to prevent them from using it unless it was totally necessary to protect an officer's safety. Could you just remind me what happened to this case in the lower courts before it even got to the Supreme Court? The United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit had ruled in Lyons' favor. The Ninth Circuit stressed the importance of having federal courts available in situations like this. Think of all of the things that government might do, that police might do. It's unconstitutional, but we don't know who will be hurt in the future. And the Ninth Circuit said we should let lions sue so as to enforce the Constitution in these circumstances. But the Supreme Court five to four reversed. Well, let me give you another example after lions. There were a couple of lawsuits brought on behalf of women who have been stopped for routine traffic violations and then strip searched by the police. And they sued saying that this horrific degrading practice violated their constitutional rights. And they want an injunction to stop the police from doing this in the future. But the lower courts relied on the Lyons decision and said, these women couldn't show that they would be stopped in the future and subjected to a strip search. Therefore, they didn't have standing to be able to sue. What is required to show that you are likely to suffer an injury or intrusion like that again, for lack of a better word? There is no litmus test for determining likelihood. You have to persuade the court that it's likely to happen to you. Imagine that there's been a plaintiff who had been choked several times by the police. Then the court's more likely to say, this person will have it happen again. And there have been so many lawsuits, I'd say dozens, but it's been hundreds, dismissed by the lower courts because the plaintiff couldn't show sufficient likelihood of personal injury in the future. And so this case, this Lyons case, had a massive ripple effect. It sounds like it's constantly being cited in cases whenever somebody was mistreated by the police. That's correct. While it transcends just being about suing police, it's particularly important in that regard. Imagine any police department is engaged in a practice that's unconstitutional and somebody is subjected to that practice. Unless the person can show it's likely to happen again, they're not gonna be able to sue for an injunction. So there've been cases involving people mauled by police dogs or subjected to mace or racial profiling. And the cases dismissed in terms of the claims for injunctive relief, because those individuals couldn't show they would be subjected to them again in the future. Do you think the 
case and subsequent cases basically embolden future police misconduct? I have found that the police are remarkably aware of what the Supreme Court says with regard to the Constitution. 20 years ago, I did a report after the Rampart scandal in Los Angeles, and I interviewed 80 to 100 police officers. And I was so struck by their knowledge, often sophisticated knowledge, about what the Supreme Court has said in terms of criminal procedure and the Constitution. There was a Supreme Court case a few years ago that I discussed in the book that made it easier for police to stop people. And several months later, the inspector general of a major police department came to me with his staff saying that the police have seen this case and have really increased their illegal stops as a result. What can we do about it? So yes, I think that the police are quite aware of what the constitution allows and what the Supreme Court says it prohibits. Hmm. Are you talking about Ren v. United States, that case? Or well, is it one I'm, before that? I'm glad to talk about Ren. The case that I was just alluding to was a case called Utah versus Street in 2016. Hmm. And I also discussed it in the book. And what it involves is there was a man in Utah and there was a police officer, Douglas Frackle, and the officer had gotten a tip that there was illegal drugs being sold from the house. So Frackle was watching the house and he saw this man, Edward Street, go in quickly and then come out. The officer followed Street to a strip mall and then stopped Street, asked him his name. Street answered honestly. The officer detained Street to check to see if there was an outstanding warrant. There was an old warrant for a traffic violation. Then the officer arrests Street, searches him incident to the arrest and finds drugs. Well, the Utah Supreme Court, not one of the more liberal courts in the country, unanimously rules in favor of Street and against the police officer. The Utah Supreme Court said, there wasn't any basis for the stop of Street that just going into a house and coming out quickly isn't a sufficient basis for reasonable suspicion. And therefore, the evidence has to be excluded. The drugs can't come in against him. The United States Supreme Court reverses. It's five to three. And the Supreme Court, in opinion by Justice Thomas, says, yes, the initial stop was illegal and unconstitutional. But once the police found there was an outstanding warrant, then Streif could be arrested and searched pursuant to the warrant. So what happened in the city that I was referring to is police officers saw this and realized they could illegally stop people all they wanted, check to see if there was an outstanding warrant. If there's no outstanding warrant, say, sorry, you can go. And if there is an outstanding warrant, arrest them and then search for drugs or anything else. If nothing's found and they want to, the police can let them go or the police can bring the person in and whatever the arrest warrant was about. But the key is this opens the door to the police being able to illegally stop people, stopping people without any reasonable suspicion. And the inspector general said in his city, the police were responding to this by dramatically increasing the illegal stops. Dean Chemerinsky, you have talked about how as we're focusing more attention on police actions that too often we have failed to put the blame on the courts, and in particular the Supreme Court. Can you help me understand 
the scope of the court's power on like everyday policing duties? Of course. The Fourth Amendment limits the ability of the police to stop and detain or search people. The Fifth Amendment and the privilege against self-incrimination limits the ability of the police to question. The Supreme Court has said that when police hold eyewitness identifications, like lineups, it has to be done in a way that complies with due process. And just through the provisions that I mentioned, there's the ability of the Supreme Court to control policing behavior and protect all of our rights. And the thesis of my book is that the Supreme Court hasn't done that, but just the opposite. The Supreme Court has either its rulings or its silence empowered the police. So it really does, I mean, have incredible scope. I mean, just in its authority to interpret, you know, the fourth, fifth, sixth, and eighth amendments, you you're basically saying that your assessment is that they've essentially not only failed, but but almost harmed um, harmed people in the process, individuals and, and civil rights. Very much so. The reality is that the political process is often unwilling to check the police, that politicians don't want to be seen as soft on crime, at least until recently, maybe even now, one of the most important endorsements is the police union. And politicians don't want to go against that. So we need the courts here, like in all areas, to protect rights. We're talking with Erwin Chemerinsky, Dean of UC Berkeley School of Law. His new book is Presumed Guilty, How the Supreme Court Empowered the Police and Subverted Civil Rights. And if you have questions or reactions to what you're hearing, as always, you are welcome to join the conversation. 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email us, forum at kqed.org. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the U.S. Supreme Court and what it's done in terms of constraining the police to ensure the constitutional rights of liberty and equality. In constitutional law scholar Erwin Chemerinsky's view, the court has not done well in this area. The court has essentially failed. His new book is Presumed Guilty, How the Supreme Court Empowered the Police and Subverted Civil Rights. And you can join our conversation by calling 866-733-6786, emailing us forum at kqed.org, or reaching us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. While you do take the U.S. Supreme Court to task, Erwin Chemerinsky, one of the things that uh, you also point out is that under the tenure of Chief Justice Earl Warren, that the court issued a number of significant decisions restricting police power and expanding the rights of criminal defendants. Can you talk about some of the most significant rulings of the Warren era? And it was a relatively limited time period, <clears throat> excuse me, within the Warren Court. It was between 1961 and 1969. And I'll give you some examples. In Knapp versus Ohio in 1961, the Supreme Court said, if state and local police engage in an illegal search, the evidence has to be excluded. It can't be used against a criminal defendant. 
1963 in Gideon versus Wainwright, the Supreme Court said, if a person is being tried for a crime in state court, and there's a possible prison sentence, the individual has to be accorded an attorney. Mm-hmm. If the person can't afford one, the state has to pay for one. It's hard to believe that until 1963, people could be tried for a crime, sentenced even life in prison, and not have to be given a lawyer. 1966, the Supreme Court in Miranda versus Arizona said that when police are questioning somebody in custody, it's inherently coercive. And the court said, anytime the police question somebody in custody, warnings have to be given. And anybody who watches police shows knows those warnings. Police have to say to the person, you have the right to remain silent, right. that anything you say can be used against you. You have a right to an attorney. If you can't afford one, one will be provided. Those are a few examples of key Warren court decisions. Yeah, so they were really trying to address injustices that they saw at that time. What was the public's reaction to what this court was doing? The public's reaction was quite negative. It was a time of higher crime. It was a time when there was disturbances, riots in many major cities. And so the Warren court was attacked by being soft on crime. In fact, when Richard Nixon ran for president in 1968, it was on a theme of, quote, law and order, and very much overturning the Warren Court by appointing so-called strict constructionists to the high court. Even while they were trying to establish rights for criminal defendants, ones that, as you say, we now really understand to be so foundational and important, By the mid to late 60s, it sounds like the court's ideology began to shift. I wonder if you think in part it was in reaction to this sort of public attack that they were getting and and the high crime rates at the time. And, uh, And if you think the case that you also cite as being a major case uh, that expanded police powers, Terry v. Ohio was a result of that. Very much so. Of course, In 1969, Richard Nixon gets to pick two justices for the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. Then in 1971, he gets to pick two more justices. And those four Nixon appointees very much changed the orientation of the court. It became far more conservative on these issues and all issues. But the case you mentioned, Terry versus Ohio, was in 1968, still under the Warren Court. And it is, practically speaking, one of the most important Supreme Court decisions in history in empowering the police. The Fourth Amendment says that police can generally search somebody, police can stop somebody, only if there's probable cause. Terry versus Ohio says that police can stop someone and frisk someone without needing probable cause, so long as there's reasonable suspicion that the person has committed or is about to commit a crime. Terry versus Ohio involves a police officer in Cleveland who saw some men walking back and forth down a public sidewalk. It might be worth noting here that the police officer white, the men were black. The men did not violate any law. They were walking back and forth down a sidewalk. The officer thought that they were casing the joint. And so the officer stops them, frisks them, and finds that they had guns they weren't allowed to possess. And the question is, since there was no probable cause that they violated the law, was the officer violating the Fourth Amendment in the stop and the frisk? 
And the Supreme Court in an eight to one decision said, police can stop somebody, police can frisk someone, but there's reasonable suspicion. The courts never defined this standard of reasonable suspicion. It is so open the door to race-based policing. The statistics show in every city, including here in the Bay Area, that police are much more likely to stop black and brown drivers than white drivers. And we show the statistics in every city across the country. To go back to your question, why did the Warren Court, in a moment when the court was more liberal than at any point in American history, decide this case this way? I think it's because of the intense criticism of its earlier decisions that was seen as handcuffing the police. And I think it was the climate of the time that the court didn't want to hand down another decision restricting the police. How does reasonable suspicion, how does that relate to probable cause? Like, are those two separate things? They are two separate things. If you imagine a continuum from no likelihood at all, it's impossible, to certainty, and then you figure out, well, where on that continuum do the police need to be? Yeah. Probable cause is somewhere less than a 50% chance. Um, reasonable suspicion is less than that, more lenient to the police. The Supreme Court in 2020 in a case, again, refused to define reasonable suspicion, but said, and I'm quoting almost verbatim, it's more than a mere hunch, but less than probable cause. And what I argue in the book I feel very strongly is that the Supreme Court's decisions basically made it possible to the police to stop and search anyone at any time. And when police have that authority, we know it's much more likely to be used against people of color than white people. And let me go to some calls. Uh, George in San Jose, join us. Hi, George. Hello, uh, great uh, topic today. Uh, my concern uh, for your guest, uh, wondering his opinion, are these uh, DUI checkpoints that we have here in California where the police will stop drivers with no reasonable suspicion or probable cause. The only reason they stop them is because they're driving down the street. Uh, these are posed by their title as for DUI, but I expect most of the tickets uh, and arrests are become because of expired registration or driver's licenses, no insurance proof, minor bench warrants, like for parking tickets. Uh, what, what do you think of that? George, thanks. There is a Supreme Court case exactly on point. The case is Michigan Department of State Police versus SIDS. And the Supreme Court said that sobriety checkpoints are constitutional. They don't violate the Fourth Amendment, even though they're stopping people without reasonable suspicion or probable cause. The Supreme Court has said that the government's interest in stopping driving under the influence to protect people justifies allowing these checkpoints. So that was the exact issue in the case and the Supreme Court upheld it and said it doesn't violate the constitution. George, thanks for the question. Michael writes, and I think this is actually um, in response to our earlier conversation about Lyon versus City of Los Angeles, but Michael writes, I have to wonder what does the Supreme Court mean by likely and has this ever been litigated maybe the likelihood of being harmed again by the police? Yes, it certainly has been litigated. Um, 
and there's many lower court cases. A subsequent Supreme Court case makes it a very high standard to meet. That case was one called Clapper versus Amnesty International in 2013. Congress amended the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act to allow the National Security Agency to intercept communications between people in the United States and certain foreign countries. This would let the NSA listen to phone conversations, read emails, and so on. Some lawyers brought a challenge saying, we can't talk to our clients now because we have to be protective of the attorney-client privilege. We don't know if the government's intercepting. Some of the plaintiffs were journalists who said, we have sources in foreign countries and we can't talk to them now because our conversations might be intercepted. The Supreme Court five to four, as it did in Lyons, dismissed for lack of standing. The court said the plaintiffs can't show that it's likely to happen to them again or that it's ever going to happen to them with regard to intercepting of calls. None of the plaintiffs could show that their conversations had been or were likely to be intercepted. The NSA doesn't tell people. And the court, in an opinion by Justice Alito, said the plaintiffs have to show that the harm is, quote, certainly impending. That's a very high Mm. standard to me. Now, there are lower courts that say you only have to show reasonable likelihood. But the only Supreme Court case that I can point to to answer your question said certainly impending. And that's a quote of its language. Well, let me go next to caller Scott in Martinez. Hi, Scott. Join us. Well, yeah. Yeah. Hi, the hi yeah. there. Um, yeah. Hi. Um, I mean, I may have like heard this wrong and forgive me if I'm speaking simplistically, but but I heard uh, your guests say that the injunctions for the strip search and the chokehold were essentially denied because they couldn't predict that it would happen to them again. But I just heard him say, I'm sure I just heard him say that in Terry v. Ohio, they based the acceptance of it on the fact that the police could perceive that they might commit a crime. So, so I'm wondering why the, in the uh, subsequent injunctions didn't cite Terry v. Ohio as precedent. Because the police, they could stop someone on the thinking that they may commit a crime, which is predictive, right? Am I, does that make sense? Uh, Scott, let me put your question to Dean Chemerinsky. Um, what are your thoughts on what Scott is saying with regard to, I think, in terms of what police are given the capacity to do relate and how that relates to um, the likelihood that people will be subject to, to future actions by police. I think Scott is right in pointing to an inconsistency by the court, though they come up in different contexts. Terry versus Ohio says, when are police allowed to stop somebody and frisk somebody? And the court says, police can stop and frisk if they've got reasonable suspicion, and that's all that's required. And so long as the police have that, the evidence that they find, like in Terry versus Ohio, doesn't have to be excluded. Then there's the separate question of if a plaintiff wants to sue police departments and get an injunction against an unconstitutional practice, what do the plaintiffs have to show? Well, the plaintiffs have to show a likelihood, maybe even a high likelihood, that will happen to the gang in the future. And so you're right that the standard we use in evaluating police behavior for the Fourth Amendment is quite different than the standard that's used in determining whether somebody has standing to sue in federal court for an injunction. 
So one of the things we hear a lot about, Erwin, is the issue of qualified immunity. Can you first just talk about what qualified immunity is, what the doctrine is, and, and what the rules around it are now? Sure. It's been interesting to see this technical legal concept become part of the popular vocabulary. Whenever a government officer is sued for money damages, for a constitutional violation, doesn't matter if it's a federal, a state, a local official, they always have what's called an immunity defense. Some government officials have absolute immunity. They can't be sued for money damages, no matter how horrific their constitutional violation. Judges for their judicial acts, prosecutors for their prosecutorial acts, legislators for their legislative acts, can't be sued for money damages, even if they violate the constitution. If a prosecutor knowingly prosecutes an innocent person, gets a conviction, and that person goes to prison for years, even to put to death, the victim can't sue the prosecutor, absolute immunity. For government officials who don't have absolute immunity, all have qualified immunity when they're sued for money damages. Qualified immunity means that the government official can be held liable only if he or she violated clearly established law that every reasonable officer should know and there has to be a right established beyond dispute. And the Supreme Court, in a series of cases, especially the last decade, has made qualified immunity an ever greater obstacle to being able to sue police and government officials. It's important to note that absolute and qualified immunity are entirely created by the Supreme Court. They're not found in any statute. The Supreme Court has invented them as defenses for government officials when they're sued for money damages. So give us an example of what the impact has been on that, because basically the way we've seen it is that it's virtually impossible to hold a police officer personally liable for like the use of excessive force because of qualified immunity. It's very difficult. I don't want to say it's impossible. There are suits against police officers that settle or that prevail at trial, but so often officers can win on the basis of qualified immunity. Let me give you an example. It's a case that I talk about in the book, a case by the name of White versus Pauly. It took place in Colorado. Um, police were following a car. Some the driving was a little bit erratic, but not enough for a traffic violation. They followed the car off the freeway. The car pulls into a house and then a standoff exists with the police officers and the people at the house shouting at each other. An officer comes onto the scene, not having known what preceded it, and the officer takes out his gun and immediately begins firing and kills somebody. And the officer sued for excessive force. And the Federal Court of Appeal said, this should go to a jury to decide if what the police officer did in shooting and killing was mm -hmm. excessive force. Mm -hmm. But the Supreme Court reverses, and the Supreme Court says, the officer is protected by qualified immunity. It can't be said that the officer violated clearly established law that a reasonable officer did know. Or another example a bit earlier was a case called Brousseau versus Haugen. A police officer was chasing somebody. It wasn't a major crime. The person gets into a car and begins to back out back of the driveway. The officer starts shooting and seriously wounds the person. The person sues and says, 
this was excessive force. There was no need here to use deadly force. And the Supreme Court says, well, there's no case on point that says officers can't do this. There's no case that say officers can't shoot somebody when they're backing out of a car, when the office is worried about safety of others. And so the office is protected by qualified immunity. I've given you two examples to put this in some context between 1982, when the rule I articulated was announced, and today, in August of 2021, there have been 33 Supreme Court cases about qualified immunity. 30 of 33 have found for the government officials and found that they could not be liable because of this doctrine. We are coming up on a break, but I mean, when you're citing the reasoning in this case that there needs to be precedent or there needs to be something established that the officer should have known, it sounds like that's also really hard to do. <laughs> and maybe you can explain more about that after the break. We're talking with Erwin Ch Chemerinsky about how the Supreme Court has influenced policing and has also enabled racist police practices. His new book is Presumed Guilty, and we'll have more with him after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Erwin Chemerinsky, Dean of the UC Berkeley School of Law. His new book is Presumed Guilty, How the Supreme Court Empowered the Police and Subverted Civil Rights. And you can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqed.org, or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum if you have questions or, or thoughts on what you're hearing from Dean Chemerinsky. And well, one of the questions that came into my mind was you kept citing that the court needs to see basically a prior case uh, to hold an officer liable. Why, why is that? <laughs> like that it has to have very similar circumstances enable for them in order for them to actually say that the officer did something wrong? You're right. And in case after case, the Supreme Court and lower courts have said that the officers can't be liable for money damages because there's no prior case on point. The standard for qualified immunity is, is there clearly established law? And there are many cases that say without a case on point, you don't have that. Let me give you an example that really fits in what you were saying before the break. The Supreme Court case in 2013, Wood versus Moss, President George W. Bush, while in office, was eating in a restaurant in Oregon and some demonstrators gathered. The Secret Service allowed the pro-Bush demonstrators to be closer to the restaurant and allowed the anti-Bush demonstrators to protest, but it'd be much further away. They sued. There's a clearly established principle under the First Amendment that the government can't choose what speech to allow or disallow or where to allow it based on the viewpoint expressed. And that's just what the Secret Service did. They pushed the anti-Bush demonstrators much further away. The, those who were pushed away sued the Secret Service agents for money damage, saying you're violating our constitutional rights. And the Federal Court of Appeal said, it's clearly established that government officials can't discriminate based on the viewpoint of the speech. The United States Supreme Court unanimously reversed and said, there's no case on point that Secret Service agents can't do this, therefore, they're protected by qualified immunity. But of course, there'll never then be a case that says they can't do it. So there'll never be a limit if it violates the First Amendment. 
shouldn't there be something to enforce that constitutional provision? Let me go to Siva in San Mateo. Hi, Siva. Thanks for waiting. Uh, this is such a disturbing issue. And whenever I listen to the radio, it's, it's, it makes me feel totally helpless and afraid. Do you have anything positive that would make me feel less helpless? Hmm, Siva, thanks for, for sharing that. And you do, Erwin Chemerinsky, have thoughts for reform or remedies that you think could really address these issues. Can you talk about what you think are the key ways that, um, well, I guess that people shouldn't feel like they're basically helpless to a, to a, a Supreme Court that uh, has so far, in your view, more often than not failed to control the police. Yes, I'm so glad for this question because there are many things that could be done even if the changes don't come from the Supreme Court. There could be action at the local, state, and federal level to better control the police. Cities and police commissions can impose rules. Many police commissions have banned the use of the chokehold. State legislatures can adopt laws, such as banning the chokehold and also imposing greater limits on the police. There were many bills last year in the California legislature after the tragic death of George Floyd that would impose greater controls on the police. Unfortunately, they didn't get adopted. There have been bills that have been passed by the House of Representatives that have adopted many restrictions on the police. Just to give some examples, part of the bill would have said that there can't be use of chokehold by police in the United States. Part of the bill would have said police can't enter residences without knocking and announcing. That's what led to the death of Breonna Taylor. There are also requirements in the federal law that's adopted to change the standard of qualified immunity, what we were just talking about. The federal law also would implement a very simple reform, require the police when they stop individuals to record the race of the person stopped. Many studies have shown that just that simple task, recording the race of the person stopped, decreases racial profiling significantly. So cities, state legislatures, Congress could do things. Also state Supreme Courts can protect rights even where the United States Supreme Court doesn't. States can provide more rights under their state constitutions than the Supreme Court provides under the US Constitution. And there are many instances where states across the country found things to violate their constitutions that the Supreme Court says don't violate the US Constitution. And one more thing, there is a federal statute, it's 42 United States Code, section 14141, that allows the Justice Department to bring action against police departments when there's a pattern in practice of violations of constitutional rights. The Justice Department did this very successfully in Los Angeles, and studies show that that suit significantly changed policing. Successful suits have been brought in cities like Cincinnati and Seattle and Baltimore. The Trump administration expressly disavowed and said it wouldn't use that statute or enforce settlements under it. But now the Justice Department is again going to use it. It can make a real difference in policing in the United States. Mm. I do want to go back, though, to your point about how states can provide provisions on criminal procedural issues. But 
but can they do that if it's inconsistent with the Supreme Court's interpretation of the federal constitution? Like, can they put state constitutional provisions in, even if, as you say, you know, the court has acted differently or has set precedent that might be different? States can provide more rights than the U.S. Constitution. They can't take away rights that the U.S. Constitution provides. Let me give you an easy example. Yeah. The Supreme Court has said there's no First Amendment right under the U.S. Constitution to use privately owned shopping centers for speech purposes. But the California Supreme Court has said under the California Constitution, there's a right to use private shopping centers for speech purposes. And we see that all the time when we go shopping in California. Or to take an example that we mentioned earlier, the state court can say police, if they stop somebody without reasonable suspicion, none of the evidence that's gained can be admitted, even if later there's found to be a warrant. Or another example, the Supreme Court has said it doesn't violate the Fourth Amendment for the police to search somebody's garbage that's left on the curb. But many state Supreme Courts have said it violates their state constitutions for the state and local police to search garbage that's left on the curb. So evidence that's gained can't come in against somebody in state court because of the state constitutional right. And I can go on with so many examples where state courts provide rights, even though there's no federal constitutional right, according to the Supreme Court. Well, Winston tweets, bottom line, criminals are apprehended in stops. Humiliated? Own it. Stop and frisk is the result of high crime rates and is a wise policy, in my opinion. The innocent are only momentarily hindered. What is your reaction to what Winston is saying? It has echoes also just of the general argument that's made that there are concerns that basically constraining police powers will have the impact of creating increases in crime, that it'll hinder crime fighting for cops. I respect that view, but I think it overstates the benefits of stop and frisk and underestimates its costs. In terms of overestimates its benefits, studies have been done to see whether or not allowing police to stop and frisk without constraint really helps to control crime. New York City provides us the example here. There was a lawsuit in New York City based on the tremendous racial way in which stop and frisk was used. And ultimately the case settled and kept the police from being able to use stop and frisk. And they were able to compare crime rates after the end of stop and frisk from while it was going on. And they found that ending stop and frisk didn't have an effect with regard to the crime rates. So there isn't evidence that shows that the police need to be able to stop and frisk with less than probable cause in order to decrease crime. But I also think the question underestimates the harms of stop and frisk. Every time the police stop somebody, there's the chance that it can escalate into violence. Also, there is something very degrading and harmful just by being stopped by the police and being questioned. Think about any of us feel of that, let alone a person of color. And I'm very concerned about the racial statistics here. And I present them in the book. I present them from the New York City litigation. I present them for San Francisco, present them for Los Angeles, present them for smaller cities like Greensboro, North Carolina. And over and again, what we see is Blacks, Latinx individuals are far more likely to stop than whites, even though whites are, in the end, found more often to have weapons and contraband. 
than the Blacks and Latinos who are stopped. You talk about the movement to defund police in your book. Can you explain what you think of it? What you think of that movement and effort? I understand the impulse, but I think it's unrealistic and undesirable. Now, we've got to be careful when we talk about what we mean by defund police. At the extreme, it's abolish the police. And there are activists like Angela Davis who argue for that. But I don't know of any society that's abolished its police. Think just of the practical implications if there weren't police to enforce the law. Now, defund the police might mean something much milder of shift some functions now done by the police to other social service agencies. And I certainly support that. I think we sometimes ask police to do things like mental health functions better served by other agencies. But in terms of defunding the police, I don't think that it's realistic and I don't think it would be desirable. And I'm also struck by the opinion polls that show that abolishing the police has very low levels of support in communities of color. We're talking with UC Berkeley Law School Dean Erwin Chemerinsky. His new book is Presumed Guilty, How the Supreme Court Empowered the Police and Subverted Civil Rights. And uh, you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me see if I can get one other calling here from Sean in Paris. Hi, Sean. Yeah, hi. Um, I have a slightly different twist on this. Um, and again, it's, it's through a conversation and it was... Um, a conversation who's a friend who is a cop. Um, and he basically said now that if they do a car stop for a for a traffic violation and that they find the person they've stopped has a warrant but has to let them go because, well, they then have to let them go because that warrant is not co um, connected to the initial stop. So, you know, irrespective of the severity of the potential crime, they have to let this person go. And he says it's, it's getting very frustrating that, you know, they, they have to release people that they know have, a, have an existing warrant because the reason they stop them is not, if not um, related to, to that actual warrant. Hmm. Sean, thanks. Urban Chemerinsky, is this something that you hear from I know you've spent a lot of time in some police departments, particularly LAPD. I mean, is this something that you hear? No, and that isn't a correct statement of the law. In fact, the case that you and I were discussing earlier this hour, Utah versus Street, is exactly what that is about. It says, even if the police stop somebody illegally, if they find there is an outstanding warrant, they can arrest the person on that warrant. And so in response to what the caller was talking about, the Supreme Court has explicitly addressed it and said, once the police find the outstanding warrant, whatever the circumstances of the stop, they're going to be arrested based on that warrant. Hmm. Well, this listener writes, when you suggest that the Supreme Court should have outlawed police chokeholds, aren't you asking it to be legislating? I don't know if that's the exact language, but, but your response to this listener. The Supreme Court has to enforce the Constitution. If chokeholds are unconstitutional, the Supreme Court should say, chokeholds are unconstitutional. And I believe that's what they should have done in the city of Los Angeles for Lions. I'm not sure what it means to say legislating. Was Brown versus Board of Education legislating when it said that laws requiring segregation of schools unconstitutional? 
was Miranda versus Arizona legislating when it said that police have to give certain warrants, warnings when they question. Um, the court has to interpret the constitution and prescribe the remedies for constitutional violations. One of the things that you've also said is that it should explicitly prohibit racial profiling. What would a prohibition like that look like? Like how would it be enforced? The key is that stopping people with a greater likelihood on the basis of race denies equal protection. A white person shouldn't be less likely to be stopped by the police than a black or a brown person. And so what the Supreme Court should say, but has never explicitly said, is that the police aren't allowed to use their discretion in a racially discriminatory fashion. That whites, blacks, brown people should all have the same chances of being stopped by the police. And this can be measured. There's studies, as I mentioned, done in city after city that looks to the race of those who are stopped by the police, how often there is evidence of a crime, how often there's weapon or contraband. And ultimately in every city, we should aspire that there isn't a difference on the basis of race. And we've seen in places like New York or even Los Angeles after the consent decree that there are ways to successfully decrease racial profiling. But it's gonna start with the Supreme Court saying what is never declared, racial profiling denies equal protection. Richard writes, have the recent Supreme Court cases finding qualified immunity been unanimous? Were there dissents? It varies based on the case. Um, some like Wood versus Moss were unanimous. Some like others I mentioned, there were strong dissents by some of the liberal justices. We are at a point, though, where the current composition of the court very much does not appear to be one that will look to constrain the police, much as even take up cases that would suggest that maybe you would try to reestablish or establish even stronger rights. What, what are you thinking about when you look at this composition? And how does that relate to what you're hoping your book will do by drawing attention to the role that the U.S. Supreme Court has played in policing. Throughout history, conservatives on the Supreme Court have tended to be very pro-law enforcement and not wanted to impose controls on the police. And we have as conservative court now as has ever been in American history. It's gonna be that way for a long time. Amy Coney Barrett was 48 years old when she was sworn in on October 25th. If she stays on the court until she's 87, the age was Justice Ginsburg died, Barrett will be a Supreme Court justice into the year 2059. When she was sworn in, Neil Gorsuch was 53, Brett Kavanaugh 55, John Roberts 65, Sam Alito 70, Clarence Thomas 72. Easy to imagine these justices being together another decade or two. So what I'm hoping is that my book will show we can't rely on the Supreme Court to impose limits on the police that constraints on the police are essential to protect all of us. And we need to look elsewhere to local governments, state governments, Congress, state Supreme Courts, the Justice Department. And we all need to be active to pressure these levels of government to do things. Well, Erwin Chemerinsky, thank you so much for coming on today and appreciate the conversation and, and how much I learned from talking with you. Thank you so much. Just my pleasure. Erwin Chemerinsky, Dean UC Berkeley School of Law, his new book, Presumed Guilty. 
how the Supreme Court empowered the police and subverted civil rights. My thanks to producer Susan Britton for producing today's segment and to you, our listeners, for your questions and your comments. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.